We've come now to the second Sunday of Lent. We are barreling towards Holy Week, barreling towards the cross, and thankfully barreling towards the resurrection. And our gospel reading this morning will certainly turn our gaze in that direction, turn us towards the death of Jesus, towards his cross. And Mark invites us this morning to reflect on these things and their meaning. What does the death of Jesus, what does his death mean uh, for him as the Messiah? What does it mean for his kingdom? And what does it mean for us as his followers? You see, Mark is interested, very interested, in showing his readers two things. There are two things that he wants us to draw out of his gospel. And the first is this. Jesus is God's promised king. Jesus is the Messiah. And the second part is this. Jesus is also God's suffering servant. He is the king and he is the servant. And what we need to glean from Mark then is that the king that everyone was longing for is also the servant that must suffer for his people. This is a combination that would have been unheard of, even scandalous to a first century Jew. And I would suggest that it is unheard of, perhaps, and even scandalous for a 21st century Somervillian. And so we have the first part of Mark's gospel Jesus is showing his disciples, showing the crowds, showing us as his readers that he is God's Messiah. He's performing miracles. He's proclaiming the kingdom. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He is God's Messiah. And now we finally get to chapter 8 and we see the disciples are actually starting to understand Yes, Jesus, we see that you're the Messiah. Right before our reading this morning, Jesus asked the disciples, he says, very pointedly, he looks at them and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter looks up and he speaks for the group and he says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, yes, Peter, that is correct. Go and tell no one. And we read that again and we're like, tell no one? Really? You're the Messiah. Don't tell anyone, Jesus says. Why? Because this title, Messiah, only conveys half the message. It's only half the answer. For Jesus to be the king, to be the Messiah, comes with all sorts of expectations and preconceived notions. It comes with the possibility and the probability even of misunderstanding the mission. And we see that throughout the Gospels. They grab him and they try to make him a king, right? And he, he refuses because they don't understand what it means for him to be the Messiah. And so now we come to our reading. And we see that Jesus is beginning to teach them. He's going to show them and tell them what this means for him to be the king. And further, he will show them and tell them what it means for them as his disciples To follow Jesus as their Messiah. And what he has to say is not at all what they expect. 
Why don't you follow along with me this morning in Mark's Gospel. We're in chapter 8. Um, I hope maybe you bought a Bible, or, or certainly most of y'all would have a Bible app on your phone, I believe. Um, Mark chapter 8, and we're going to begin at verse 31. And what I want us to see this morning is that Jesus is a scandalous king, and he's leading a scandalous kingdom. He's a scandalous king, and he's leading a scandalous kingdom. Let's unpack that. So once the disciples have confessed Jesus as the Messiah, he begins to teach them. Now it's interesting. Mark's gospel goes out of the way, and he says he, he teaches them plainly. They could not misunderstand what he was saying. This isn't like earlier in the gospel, right, where he would use parables and, and, and say these sort of um, these things that are difficult to understand, and then he called them as disciples together, right, and say, okay, this is what I mean. It's not like that. He's teaching them plainly. It's clear what he is saying. This isn't a metaphor. Once the disciples have confessed the Messiah, he begins to teach them. Look at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, this image of this Messiah figure in Daniel who, who gets to sit at the right hand of God and rule over the cosmos. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He must be killed and after three days, rise again. The Son of Man must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. This is a scandal. Now, it's interesting to consider in Jesus' day, um, maybe you didn't realize this, there were actually quite a few self-proclaimed messiahs. Movements like the one that Jesus was leaving, leading were not particularly uncommon. Surely they weren't daily occurrences, but they weren't uncommon. And every single one of those self-proclaimed messiahs was crucified. Was crucified, was killed. And the fact of the matter is this. If you're following a messiah, and your messiah gets crucified, it's time to find a new messiah. Right? And yet here is Jesus predicting this very fate for himself. Yes, I'm the Messiah, and I'm going to be killed. And it's a scandal, an utter scandal to his disciples. And so Peter, again speaking for all of them, rebukes Jesus, right? He says, Jesus, come over here for a second. He calls him aside. I can imagine maybe put his arm around his shoulder and saying, look, Jesus, you can't say these things. It's not how it works. Look at there in verse 32. He said this uh, plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But Jesus, turning and seeing his disciples, instead rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, you don't understand my kingship. You're thinking about worldly things, about earthly things, about overthrowing empires and restoring national identity. You're thinking about things that are not of God's kingdom but of this world, and they are inspired in your mind by Satan himself. Peter does not understand that the king must suffer. 
that he must die. Because, listen to this, a heavenly kingdom without, without a suffering king, a heavenly kingdom without a suffering king has no subjects. A heavenly kingdom without a suffering king has no citizens. This is the scandal of the king. That he must suffer and die for the sake of his people. That no one can enter into this kingdom on his own accord. Ethnic identity, moral superiority, proper worship. None of these things equips us to stand before the king. We need a king who will suffer. We need a king who will die. We need a king who will rise again. We need this kind of king before we can join him in the kingdom. You've heard me use this illustration before, but just, just bear with me and think with me for a second. Examine your hearts. That's sort of what we do in Lent. I invite you to examine your hearts and perhaps the evil inside of them. And think about the standards that you hold everybody else to, okay? Your spouse sitting next to you, the standards you hold your children's to, the standards you hold the driver who just cut you off in traffic to. What, what standards do you hold everybody else to? Now imagine on the last day that you took those standards and they were turned against you. And you were held to the very same standards that you hold everybody else to. Where would you fall in that paradigm? I know I would be well short. But consider, how much holier are God's standards? How much holier are his expectations? What happens when God's king comes to judge by his standards? There's a penalty and there's a death. And so asking for a king of loan, seeking a king that doesn't suffer, is not good news. It's terrifying news. But the good news of Jesus is that he is the king, that he's come to judge sin, he's come to judge evil, he's come to judge injustice, but it's only good news because he paid the penalty already. He died so that we might live. He paid the penalty that we deserve that we might have the life that he has to offer. It's good news because Jesus has died to pay the penalty for the sin and the evil and the injustice that dwells in our own hearts. And then he judges us based not on our goodness, but on his own. And so the prediction of Jesus' death on, on this side of the resurrection is sweet and good news. But yet for the disciples and the Jewish leaders, it was a scandal. It was a scandal. And yet Jesus continues, right? He turns to the crowds after rebuking Peter. He turns to the disciples. And he realized that Jesus is not only a scandalous king, but he, he's inviting us to follow him into a scandalous kingdom. It's a kingdom where gaining one's life means actually losing it. 
Where following the king means carrying a cross and not a sword. Where one must be proud of a crucified Messiah. It's a scandalous kingdom. Look at verse 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Jesus opens up this teaching with a striking call. If anyone wants to follow him, if anybody wants to follow me, Jesus says, they must take up their cross. Now, in the first century Roman world, the only reason you would take up his cross is to march to your death. You didn't take up a cross to help out, you didn't take up a cross to get exercise. You took up a cross so that you would die. So that your hands and your feet would be nailed into it. So that you would die a bloody death. And Jesus says, take up that cross. Take up that life and follow me. And I think this is what had Peter and his disciples most upset. It's really interesting. We don't get any insight into what Peter said to Jesus, right? He doesn't, Mark doesn't tell us. What was Peter thinking? What was his concerns? What was he, he specifically addressing? We don't really know. And it's easy to think that Peter was focused on an earthly kingdom. He was focused on overthrowing Rome and reestablishing Israel. And certainly he was to some extent. But I wonder, could it possibly have been more personal than that? Did Jesus say something that hit Peter in his heart? Can't you at least hear Peter thinking, Jesus, if you're going to suffer, if you're going to die, if this is true for you, is it not also going to be true for me? If you're going to be a crucified king, Jesus, doesn't that mean that we will be crucified disciples? I don't think Peter enjoyed hearing those words any more than we do. He'd already given up his livelihood. He'd given up his occupation to follow Jesus. And now he's being asked to give up his life. And are we not called to do the same? And yet this thought of giving up our lives, it means we have to give up our ambition, ourselves, our identities. It's a terrifying thought. And it's a scandal. In fact, I suggest we're very comfortable with this idea of Jesus being a scandalous king, being our savior, a Jesus who would die for us. But it's very difficult for us to handle the scandalous kingdom. A kingdom which requires our death to truly have life. And yet it is in this very death that we find life. We find who we truly are. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, 
He said, the more I resist Jesus and try to live my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely a meeting place for trains of events which I never started and cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts. If we so focus on ourselves and our agendas and our desires, what we find is we're really being shaped by other things. Jesus says we have to die to these things to truly live. And it's in Christ that we truly find who we are. But only when we let go of ourselves, when we give up our lives for the sake of Christ. Peter had an agenda, right? And his agenda did not include going to Jerusalem and suffering with Jesus. And so he was rebuked. It's only when our agenda matches that of Jesus that we can know a true and freeing life. Only when we give up of ourselves, give up of who we think we should be so that we can become Jesus' disciples and find out who we really are. Only then will we find our true selves and only then will we save our lives by first losing them. I'll close again with Lewis. He says, nothing that you have not given away will be truly yours. Nothing that has not died will ever be raised. If you look to find yourself in your own agendas and your own desires and your own longings, you will find only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and even decay. Rather, look only for Christ. And when you find him, you will find everything else thrown in. Let us pray.